Today's scripture is Matthew 10, verses 5 through 15. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for, bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. All right, surprise ending. All right. Good morning. It has been... Uh, there. There's some glitches in the matrix this morning. There has been all morning. I got here, the computer was broken, pulled out the old one. It's, it's been a thing. Anyways, uh, happy Mother's Day. I could hear my mother's voice in my ear. She lives in New York, but I could hear her last night telepathically telling me, trim your beard and put on a tie. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I'll send her a picture. Um, okay. She's like, don't wear all black. Fine. Okay. So... Um, this is our passage this morning, and uh, yeah, it, it's got like this Shyamalan ending, and we're going to talk about that. <coughs> and um, if it's your first time here, my name is Tommy, I'm supposedly the pastor here, and uh, we, we go through um, books of the Bible, like one verse at a time, and, uh, and straight through to build a narrative of, of uh, an overarching picture of what scriptures are saying rather than just pulling one verse out of its context and making some kind of um, claim about that. We're going to look at everything in one big picture. Um, chapter 10 of Matthew is sort of the introduction of evangelism and, and missions into the world. Um, there's a lot to cover today. There's a lot of, lot of random stuff that is covered in this passage. And uh, I'm going to try to help it all make sense to you. Um, give you some lenses through which to read this passage, and, uh, and it should be fine. We're talking about um, a little bit about biblical interpretation. Um, we're talking about at the end here, despite what it looks like at the end, we're actually going to talk about hope and, and, um, and the hope that is in this passage. Okay, so um, let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide our time together. And uh, I ask that you would grant us peace and joy and mercy and happiness this morning. I ask that we would be present here with you and your people. Um, I ask that you would give us wisdom and understanding. Give us um, not just knowledge, but the, the wisdom um, to interpret that knowledge and uh, to apply it, to, to pull out the values of, of um, the work that the early Christians were doing and, uh, and help us to see it fresh and new um, and help us find a way to bring those values into our life and into our world and... Um, and to watch them grow life and new people, uh, new life in people. Thank you for this place. Um, 
Give us everything that we are looking for this morning, everything that we are missing, a little, um, a little glimpse of, of your kingdom and of joy. Thank you. In your name, amen. Okay, uh, verse five through seven. Uh, these 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter, in, enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Um, okay, we're going to talk about the second half in a second. It starts off with Jesus saying, so he's sending them out to do his work, to continue his work. Um, healing, reconciliation, restoration of people who have been cast out, um, uh, sort of fighting against the, the hierarchy of the day, the highest social class versus the low, and bringing them together into one place, um, and giving them the message of God, how we are all equal in the eyes of God, all children of God, giving them a new way to live. And he tells his disciples, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to go to uh, Jerusalem. You're going to go reach the Jewish people. Um, now, I, I think that this was, to me, it's pretty obvious that this was a practical um, measure, that this is a, a decisive decision that Jesus made to first send his disciples to the Jewish people. And there's several reasons for that. Um, uh, first off, they were not equipped to reach the Gentiles. Um, they probably, the, the disciples probably weren't fully aware of all the things that the Gentiles believed. They weren't educated in those things like the, the later disciples and the apostles like Paul and, and these others were. I mean, when you read the book of Romans, the end of it, there's a list of people there. Many of them are Gentiles and Romans, and they would be better equipped to reach these people. Um, and I don't think the disciples would have put up much of a fight and said, oh, we're not going to go to the Gentile people. Like, they, didn't, they weren't into that yet. They didn't understand that God was eventually going to graft the Gentiles into the people of God. So... Um, Oftentimes you hear people try to make a theological argument out of this. They say, well, God went to the Jews first and they rejected God. And so then, then he started Christianity and, and has rejected the Jews. Um, that's a theological argument. I don't think it holds any water. Uh, I, people pull it from this, from this verse here. Um, the early Christians, in fact, were Jewish. That's what they were. The, the writers of the book of Matthew were Jewish Christians. Um, and so... When people say things like they read this passage and they say, well, that, that seems um, kind of uncharacteristic of Jesus to reject a whole bunch of people and, and go exclusively to another people, it's only uncharacteristic of Jesus if it's a theological reasoning for it. If it's just, this is all we're equipped to do right now, then it's no longer un- uncharacteristic of Jesus and his disciples. It's just sort of utilitarian, okay? So it starts there, and then he sends them out. He says, as you go, and he, he, just, he gives the same old thing he's told them several times. Proclaim the kingdom of heaven, that it's come near, heal the sick, raise the, um, raise the sea. It's supposed to say raise the dead. That's weird. I copied and pasted directly from the Bible. The Bible had a, uh, an error in it. I'm sure it was, it was Tommy. It was me. Cleanse the, raise the sea. Cleanse those who have leprosy and drive out demons. Um, okay. So this is just the, the mission of Jesus. This is what he was doing. Um, Making people whole again. This is the whole idea. So we go a little farther here. Um, and we go to verse 8. Um, okay. And he adds this little part on the end. I'm sorry. The, the last half of verse 7. He adds this little part. Freely you have received. Freely give. Now, this is really important in the ancient world. Um, this little line. People tend to ignore it. Um, and it's rooted in, in what Jesus was doing and Jesus' identity as a rabbi. As a Jewish, first century Jewish, Palestinian Jewish rabbi. Now, um, Rabbis in the first century um, <clears throat> were not allowed to be paid for their work, for their teaching. They were not allowed. Um, they could not accept any payment of any kind. And in fact, they had been trained for free. Um, they didn't pay their rabbis and they shouldn't expect payment 
uh, for themselves as rabbis. They were forbidden from charging for their work as disciples. Um, Jesus was not paid for his teaching. He was, Jesus was actually funded from the outside by two wealthy women. Um, and one day we're going to talk about that. One of, them, one of them's name was Joanna. Um, uh, one of the most fascinating things I've ever found that I'm actually not going to go into today, so I guess it's some kind of weird teaser, um, is that is that uh, is the where the money came from to fund Jesus? It's fascinating. So um, and uh, so he was funded by the generosity of, of two women who traveled with them. Um, so uh, if a rabbi in the first century received money for their teachings, they were no longer in the rabbinical business. They were now in the business of traveling preacher. Traveling preacher, however, in the first century was a massive business. There were lots and lots and lots of them. Um, I want to read you uh, an ancient first century quote from a guy I've, I've quoted before. His name is Dio Chrysostom. And, and he describes what was going on in the city streets of these cities as you would travel in, as you would enter in. He says this, You might hear many poor wretches of sophists shouting and abusing each other and their disciples, as they call them, squabbling, and many writers of books reading their stupid compositions, um, and many poets singing their poems, and many jugglers exhibiting their marvels, and many soothsayers giving the meaning of prodigies, and 10,000 rhetoricians twisting lawsuits, and no small number of traders driving their several trades. So basically, people on every street corner hawking their thing, right? Their business. Trying to make money. Um, if you were like, I've talked about this a lot before. If you were a, a really good rhetorician, if you could stand up on a street corner and speak like a boss, then, then people would literally walk up and give you money. This is what they would do. And you'd get very rich and famous for this. Um, so what Jesus is doing here is he is drawing boundaries. He says, you're going to go into these cities. Um, you're going to reach the Jewish people because this is rabbinical work. Um, and only the Jewish people follow the rabbis. And you are not going to charge because if you do, you are suddenly just like everyone else out there. And people will no longer look at you as doing the work of your rabbi. You will now be um, just making a living. And the Jewish people will absolutely ignore what you are saying. So... Um, he didn't, want his pe- he didn't want people to think that they were traveling preachers. Um, he didn't want people to think that they were benefiting off of teaching the law, off of teaching the tor- Torah and Jesus' interpretation of the Torah. So there's actually this fascinating story. Um, there's, this, there's this rabbi, ancient rabbi named uh, Rabbi Tarfin. And there's this story of him um, at the end of what's the fig season. I don't know what season that is. I don't grow figs. But at the end of the fig season, um, basically the Jewish law was you could, after... Um, the, the farmers were allowed to make one or two passes through the field, and anything that was left on that they missed, they would have to leave for gleamers to come in, poor people to come in and eat what they wanted. So this rabbi is not getting paid. He has to make a living. He has to eat. And so he's walking through the fig field after the harvest, and he's picking up the random figs and picking them off the trees that, and eating them. Um, and the owner was apparently selfish, the owner of the, of the farm, and, and he comes running out with, his, with his, his workers, and they start beating this rabbi up for taking figs from this field. And at some point, the rabbi reveals himself, and he says, I am Rabbi Tarfan, and he's a, he's a really famous, well-known rabbi. And the people instantly stopped beating him, and they felt really, really bad for what they'd done, plus they looked really stupid um, because they were breaking the law, and they were repenting, and they were... Um, and, and so basically they stopped, and he saved himself <clears throat> by, by revealing who he was. And for the rest of his life, he regretted that he had done that that he had used his name and revealed who he was because he knew that the people respected the teachings of the law. And here's a quote from him. Here's what he wrote. He says, Woe is me, for I have used the crown of the law for my own profit. 
So not only um, was, he, was it wrong, considered wrong in the eyes of, of the ancient Jewish people to use the teachings of God and interpretations of the Torah for profit, it was also wrong to use them for any kind of personal gain, including saving yourself from being beaten in any sense of the word. Um, so this was a big deal. Jesus wanted to make sure that people weren't mistaking the work of his disciples for other things, other people doing different things. Um, and then he has some more commands to go with these. He says, do not take any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff for the worker is worth his keep. So um, ancient travel um, there's an aspect of, of simple living in this, but ancient travel in general, um, <clears throat> on long trips, you would typically bring uh, a change of clothes. Everyone would typically have one extra shirt, um, unless you were impoverished. The last thing you would sell was your, was your extra shirt. You usually, at the most, had two, though, unless you were wealthy. Um, <clears throat> so you would bring an extra change of clothes um, and money in a bag tied to your belt or fastened around your neck, um, and you could stuff... Um, loaves of bread and other such food into these pouches that you were carrying. Now, um, Jesus, by saying this, he basically is forbidding normal traveling apparatuses. And there's several reasons for this, and we're going to get into those in a minute. Um, But what you hear from Jesus when you compare with some other teachings of his day, um, other sort of similar teachers, um, like like the Essenes. Um, The Essenes, we've talked about them several times. They were sort of the, the, the libertarian Jewish sect, and they... They, they basically wanted to live off the grid. They moved out of the cities and built their own sort of villages in the, in the middle of the desert. This is an, Essene, an ancient Essene um, village. And when they traveled, they would actually do these things that Jesus is talking about. Um, they, they showed devotion to God by their simple lifestyle. They lived in the wilderness. They devoted all, all their goods to the community. They didn't own anything personally. Um, they didn't take provisions when they traveled. They expected hospitality from fellow Essenes and Jewish people in the cities that they went to. There was a culture of hospitality in the ancient world that was incredibly important. Um, and we're actually going to talk about that a little bit um, near the end. That's where the Sodom and Gomorrah piece comes in. We're going to get there. Um, so we need to make sure oftentimes. So, so basically, all of this is sort of a symbol of, of, no, we trust God. We don't want anyone to think that we're here for our private gain. Um, and as you start building this picture, you start to see more and more. I think it's really important as we interpret scriptures that we, we don't take things that are cultural and specific to the day in which Jesus was doing them and make them general, general and applicable to everyone everywhere. I've, I've heard people take these things and turn them into all kinds of laws for people today. They wouldn't be bad things to follow. I guess some of them could be relatively dangerous. I'm not going to go... Take a drive through Death Valley with no provisions at all and just expect that when I get to the other end, someone's going to take me in and feed me. Um, you likely won't get to the other end. Um, and so we don't want to take sort of these blanket statements that Jesus is, if, if Jesus is building this picture of evangelism and missions, um, all of that is, in, is important, but what is really important is to understand sort of, instead of the commands that he's giving, Let's try and understand the values with which he is offering these commands. There are some values that he is trying to uh, instill in the, in, the, in the hearts of these people. Um, the significance of the lifestyle 
um, of this lifestyle that Jesus is promoting here with his disciples is, is the values that it reflected, not necessarily the actions themselves. Um, as Christians, we're oftentimes very religious. We read this and we say, so does this mean I can't take provisions when I travel? Um, we read these things very literally. Um, does this mean I shouldn't, I shouldn't um, bring any money? Does this mean I shouldn't, do I, should I just go to a city when I'm doing missions work and expect someone to take me in? Um, that is to miss the actual values that Jesus is, is instilling here. So let me open up some of this and show you some things that might shed some light on some of the values. Um, so the forbidden travel tools for Jesus' disciples. Um, again, he said you couldn't take multiple cloaks or sandals. Um, this was likely um, a compassionate move, an empathetic move, because they were going to people oftentimes who were incredibly poor and who didn't have a change of clothes and who didn't have an extra pair of sandals. That would be like rolling up uh, to a... a an impoverished, terrible sort of shanty town in a Mercedes um, and getting out to do missions work. It's not helpful, right? Um, and this is sort of part of the value and the mindset here. There's more to this. The staff was an instrument of self-protection in that day. Um, a lot of people will point to this and say, oh, no, it was a picture of, of, it was a walking stick to help them walk. Well, these were like teenagers. They were fine. Um, they didn't need help necessarily walking. This was a protection tool um, to protect themselves from bandits, from robbers, from all kinds of stuff. And they're not carrying money. There's nothing to be taken from them. And Jesus specifically tells them, you're not going to take protective weaponry because you're not coming in any way, shape, or form to hit anybody, you're, you're literally going there to help them and to restore them to wholeness again. If there's nothing to steal, there's nothing to defend, there's no reason for you to ever have to protect yourself for another human being. And in fact, the early disciples were beaten and they were left for dead several times. They were insulted, they were yelled at, um, and they made a specific point of not carrying these defensive weapons because... They would be attacking and hitting someone, even in self-defense, who was made in the image of God. Um, and that would be blasphemous in their minds. And so Jesus literally sends them out in this way. Um, so, um, and the last one was the bag that it talks about is a specific uh, Greek word that refers to a bagging bag that, you, that travelers would carry. Um, so you could sit on the side of the road. There would be like a place for travelers would sit and they would beg and almsgivers would travel through and they would, they would put money in the satchels and the bags of these people. And, and the word that is used there is a begging bag. Jesus doesn't want them to at all misconstrue what they are doing here. None of this is about them. None of this is for their own um, longevity and fame or any of it. They couldn't, without the begging bag, they couldn't make any money from preaching. None of it. Um, there is, in fact... The val- the, a value at the center of all of this, uh, which it, it points to something different. Um, there is a passage in the Talmud that sounds very much like what Jesus is talking about here. I'm going to read it to you here. Uh, it's in a specific book. Um, um, it's in the Mishnah. It's called, it's called the Book of Divine Services, the Law of the Chosen House. Chap- chap- that's basically the name of the book. Chapter 7, verse 2. And it says this. How does one express reverence? So that we have a value here. The value is reverence. And then it says this. A man does not enter the temple mount holding a staff or wearing shoes or wearing a money belt or with dust on his feet. Jesus literally, uh, a few verses later, is going to mention dust on your feet. Um, or with money tied in his robe. Everything that is mentioned here is something that Jesus is talking about. This is a Jewish um, way of speaking to people in a way that says, 
Um, the work you are doing is reverence. It's as if you were entering the temple. And Jesus is teaching his disciples that the whole thing is the temple. The work that you were doing. You would never walk into the temple and beg for money there. Um, you would never walk into the temple with some kind of defensive weapon. When you enter into the temple of God, you are, you are, um, you are not in your house. You are in the house of the Lord and you are there to do God's work and to commune with God. And so Jesus sends them out into the world as if um, they are being sent into the temple to worship God. This is going to be an act of worship and reverence. Okay, this elevates the whole thing high above. So this is not a bunch of commands for American missionaries in the 21st century. This is Jesus giving people a value of reverence in, in the evangelistic work of taking the kingdom of God to people. Um, it's a way to look at people and a way to talk to people. That is wholly different than just going to work. Okay, so there's all of that. Um, um, there's, there's more there and we could go farther. I'm going to go on to the next verse and I'm going to show you a little, uh, a little more here. Um, he says this, whatever in verse 11 to 13, whatever town or village you enter, search, uh, search there for some worthy person and stay in their house until you leave. And as you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest upon it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. Uh, two things here. Um, so the idea of finding a worthy house, it's just a simple it's, it's an ancient way of just like a simple house that you could stay in, like a, a simple cottage or house, um, a moderate house, nothing fancy, nothing impoverished, just something that is like something that suits you. Just go stay there, find this house, offer a blessing when you walk in and stay there. Um, now, the command here is, is really quite simple, and several scholars comment on this, and they say there was a habit in that day of traveling preachers that you would stay in one house. And if you happen to befriend or impress a rich person, um, they would invite you to their house because they want to learn more from you, right? So you would leave this house and you move up. And the whole goal was to get into wealthier and wealthier houses in these ancient towns. Um, Jesus says, none of that. Pick a house, do good work, stay in that house, serve these people. How insulting would it be for someone to come up and say, I've got a nicer place than that crap hole for you to stay in. Come over here. And they're like, and they're packing up and they're leaving. Like, where are you going? Well, there's a nicer place I can stay. So all of this is, again, this sort of value of reverence um, for the work that they're doing. Um, and there's the second part here, which is really fascinating and really interesting. Um, in verse 12, as you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest upon it. Um, if it is not, let your peace return to you. So this has baffled a lot of people for a long time. Um, we, we know now, though, from a lot of scholarship that's been done with uh, things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and all these, these codices that we found over the last century or so, we've learned a lot more about the culture. There was a general idea that words had power um, to create the thing that you were talking about. Um, so if you greeted somebody and you said, Shalom, those words that you had, that you said, in the mind of the ancient Jewish people, had the power to create Shalom. It was a blessing that you were offering, but it was like... We talk today and we say things like words have power and, and in a sense they do. Um, the first century people would say that and mean it far more literally than you do. They, they believe, you know, God created the world. They told the story, God created the world by speaking things into existence. Um, they believe all kinds of things that were sort of in there, um, in that area. There's a passage from Isaiah where he says, I send my word out and it's not going to return void, right? Um, but however, if... 
If you found out later that somebody was lying to you when they received your blessing or that they had deceived you in some way or that they were your enemy in disguise or they were a spy, you could go to them. You, you would literally go to them and you would take back your blessing. You say, hey, remember the other day I told you shalom? I need that back. Just, what? No, I need it back now. I, you can't take that back. No, I'm taking it back. You're not going to have shalom. But I've been enjoying the shalom while I'm taking it back. And they would take back their blessing and they would stomp off and shake the dust off their feet and walk away. Um, so this is like very contextual. This is, to them, it made sense. And, and it's sort of, you can imagine sort of the mindset that they're going with, right? Um, it's sort of offer somebody your greeting um, and then sort of work and hope and pray for good things upon them. Um, and then they would throw in sort of these cultural things. So it's really interesting. And we don't always know what to do with stuff like that when we find it, but it's fascinating that it's there. Um, so... All of this, I would argue, is not just a value of reverence. There is a base note in this whole thing of simplicity in the Christian life. Um, And I don't mean simplicity in the way that we kind of mean it today, which is like less stuff. Um, Simplicity in the scriptures is not like the simplicity of the world today. It's not about shunning tangible things. It's about understanding that we all have exactly what we need and that everything is a gift to be enjoyed and to be shared uh, for the blessing of the world around us as if we are priests in the temple of God and all the instruments in the temple are not there for the priests to enjoy and to use. They are there to do the work of the priests. We are called a priesthood of the saints and everything that exists in this world is supposed to be used by us, the priests, to reconcile people to God. This is the mindset. This is the whole thing. I think if you get this, you're going to understand all of these commands that Jesus is talking about. Um, there's this, um, and, and the thing is about simplicity, it is a gift to you. It's hard to practice, but once you receive it, once you change your mindset and have this sort of mindset of simplicity um, in life, following Jesus, establishing the kingdom, and finding peace in your life is much is much easier. There's a quote um, by Richard Foster, uh, who, who, if you've been around long enough, you know, it's my favorite book of all time, The Celebration of Discipline. Um, and he says this, if what we have, we receive as a gift, and if what we have is to be cared for by God, and if what we have is available to others, then we will possess freedom from anxiety. Um, so much anxiety today, so many people are stressed, and the main things people are stressed about is they have payments to make, Stuff's breaking down. They're trying to keep up with it. Um, they're worried about business deals going through. We're not going through. We're trying to buy cars and houses and we've broken phones and we have, you know, all this stuff. And it's just there's anxiety and you can't keep up. Um, the mindset of the follower of Jesus, if Jesus is Lord and if the whole thing is a temple, there, there will be things that will be handled in a way as if they, they are all here to do the work of God. And part of the work of God is to bring joy to people. And so that's part of it. But in the end, what you have is not yours. It should be available for the kingdom of God to be used in whatever way others need and whatever way God sees fit. Um, And there is this sort of release of anxiety of like, oh, that's not what any of this is about. None of this really matters, right? Um, And so... Uh, your stuff that you have in your life is perfectly capable of either hindering your evangelistic and healing work in this world, or it's capable of, uh, it's capable of sabotaging it all, or it's capable of, of like pushing it forward and doing great things. Um, and so, um, and so again, the Talmud tells us that no one's supposed to go into the temple mount, um, in this way, right? So 
when the rabbis began applying all these ideas to making disciples, this is everything that they're talking about. Jesus majored in this. He thought this was really important, um, how people saw his disciples, um, that they weren't supposed to appear in any way selfish, arrogant, prideful, greedy, out for their own. There was a way that they were to carry themselves in the world that was free of anxiety, free of greed, all of this. Now, um, man, time is going fast. All right, I'm going to pick up the speed here. I got, oh, man, I've got a long ways to go. Okay, here we go. Um, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. So I'm going to stop here for a second before we get to the big, the big one here. Now, um, when the Jewish people were entering from Gentile territory as they were traveling along the road into Jewish territory, there was a tradition they had where they would stop, take their sandals off, and shake the dust off of their sandals. This was a way of saying we are entering back into the Holy Land, the land God gave to us. Um, Gentiles weren't allowed into the temple up until um, much later, um, and the Jewish people um, believed that having Gentiles in their town and Roman people in their town um, was unclean, and they didn't allow uncleanliness inside the temple. And so the whole land of Israel to them, all of the promised land, when they were entering into it, they would take their sandals off and they would wipe off the dust. So what Jesus is saying here, if someone rejects the work that Jesus is doing, um, and, and what Jesus was doing was relatively clear. It was the rejection of this sort of system of, of like hierarchy, high culture, low culture, and, and Jesus was bringing them all together to one table to bestow the grace of God upon everybody and reconcile people together. If people weren't interested in that kind of work, which the prophets always pointed to and said, this is what God is going to do. And if they're not interested in that, what Jesus is saying here is, treat them like Gentiles. They're rejecting the work of God. Um, God's people will be on board with this. And if they're rejecting this, they're rejecting basically their status as God's people. He's saying, treat them as Gentiles. And then it gets into a huge statement here that we're going to spend a little bit of time on. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. So, um, Sodom and Gomorrah were two of three cities that were called, um, the ancient people referred to as the cities of the, of the valley. The, the valley today, we don't exactly know where these cities were in the valley. Um, there's remnants and remains of cities buried under, under brimstone and ash because there was seismic activities, all kinds of stuff. Um, here's what we do know. As, as the, the Hebrew people tell the story, um, this was an evil town. They did terrible, evil things. Um, I actually, I, I, I preached a sermon in our book, in, when we were going through the book of Genesis several years ago, where I, I read ancient quotes about the cities of the valley and how terrible and horrible they were in the eyes of the other people. Um, they would, um, uh, they were, first off, they were very, very wealthy towns. And they would let poor people just die on the streets. Um, they were known for when foreigners were traveling, were, were traveling through who worshipped other gods. They would capture them and they would, um, they would gang rape them and they would torture them and beat them to death regularly and hang them on the gates outside the city. Um, all three of the cities would do this. Um, this was this way of sort of proclaiming the dominance of their gods. And there was, there's so much in there. Um, if you read the book of Ezekiel, it talks a little bit about um, how the, 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 the Israelites, the Jewish people, viewed these towns because the prophet Ezekiel goes into great detail describing the sins of these people. Here's what he says. Um, we're going to get to this part in the, in the bottom here in a minute. 
Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Now, um, there's a biblical account that basically writes about how fire and brimstone fell on the city and destroyed the whole thing. Um, And it would appear, geologically, that seismic activity indeed brought ruin to the cities of the valley. Um, And for the Jewish people, these cities were so evil that they said, of course, this is what happens when you don't follow the path of God. When you behave in ways that are unjust and evil, this is the natural consequence of what happens. Um, Because this is how they understood. This is... This is how they understood their story. This is how they told it. Um, And so not only does it talk about how terrible and evil they were, but watch what Ezekiel does. He says, you and your sisters, Jerusalem. So now he's talking to the people of God. He's talking to the people of God now. And he says, you have done way worse things than the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. You have done more detestable things than they and have made your sisters seem righteous by all these things that you have done. He says, And Jerusalem, the people of God, the way that you have acted makes Sodom and Gomorrah seem righteous in the eyes of God. Now, basically, he's condemning them for the evil, the injustice that they have been doing in their cities. Um, It was no surprise for them to look back on their story and see that every time they acted like this, they ended up in Babylonian captivity, Assyrian captivity, their temple was destroyed and burnt to the ground, their people were taken as slaves. Um, Because this is the story of God's people. If you were here a few weeks ago, you remember, there is a cycle in ancient Hebrew history. It starts off with a king who does evil, and it ends up with them being oppressed, suffering in bondage, their city wiped out, destroyed. And every single time, this happens 20 or 30 times in the Old Testament, and every time the people cry out, they stand up and they say, we're so sorry, Here, we, please rescue us from where we are. And God sends a deliverer all through the book of Judges. They're called Judges. Later on, they're kings. Um, and they bring about deliverance, and then there is this restoration. Okay, This is the cycle of the people who don't live in the way that they believe that God has put us here to live. To live. Um, so basically, here's what we're getting at. Um, I'm trying to find the best way to describe all this. So Jesus is speaking to Jewish people, Jewish disciples going to Jewish cities. The Jewish people knew the cycles of how the world worked, how their history worked. Um, and so they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Um, Jesus is basically making a proclamation to his own people. He's saying, you're doing it again. Remember Ezekiel? Remember Sodom? Remember all of the proclamations? Um, this, is, this is God bringing people back to his ways, to his path. And if you don't take part in it, if Jesus is not your Lord, some other Lord will be your Lord. And these other Lords aren't near as forgiving as God is. They're not near as graceful. They're not near as loving. The path is not healing. It doesn't bring about peace in this world. Okay, so this is sort of, what this is not, this is not a command for you and I to go down to Ebor and hold up giant signs with pictures of hellfire on them and tell everyone that they're Sodom and Gomorrah and God is going to rain down fire on them. That is not what Jesus is doing. And I can prove that to you. Um, Because in the minds of the Jewish people, the story never ends here. There is more to it. And with Ezekiel, the story doesn't end here either. It's not like God just wipes people out and says, 
there you go, we're done with them, and washes hands and walks away. If you keep reading the story, there is more to it. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 53. However, however, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters. What? Wait, hold on. Hold on, this was never part of the story before. Okay, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and of Samaria. You know who Samaria was, right? There were Jews who had gone astray, who had um, sort of cultized the, um, the Hebrew religion. They had written their own sort of Bible, right? Um, um, of Samaria and her daughters and your fortunes along with them. I will remember the covenant that I made with you in the days of your youth. You will receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger, and I will give them to you as daughters. And you will know that I am the Lord. So when Jesus says, there will be judgment, and it will be hard, it will be difficult, because when you live in these other ways that you were not created to live, it brings sin into this world, which brings pain. I mean, we can look back over the last 150 years of, of world history, and we can see what sin brings into the world. Death, destruction, the dis- societies falling. Um, and many of us would argue that this could have been stopped if the people of God would stand up and live as the people of God. Um, I would argue that Hitler would not have been able to do what he did had Christians not gone along with it. If we had all lived in the path of God, the destruction that befell the world would not have happened. And I can quote many German scholars, biblical scholars, who would say the exact same thing in that exact time. Now, here we are. When Jesus says this, there is, there is a ringing in the back of the minds of the people who are hearing this, who say, they, they will know, um, we, they'll say, we know the cycles. Yes, there'll be destruction, um, and it, it'll, be, it'll be a method of learning, but in the end... Um, we'll cry out for help again and God will rescue us and God will restore us. You see, in the mind of the Jewish people, the judgment of God that, that, that Jesus is talking about here, in, in the first century Jewish people, in their mind, judgment of God, it was not retributive. It was restorative. It was all about restoring people to where they are supposed to be. Um, all through the New Testament, you will see passages where it says, and God removes their hands and just lets them have what they want. Oftentimes, um, God's punishment is oftentimes just to let people, okay, have what you're asking for. But, but you know by chasing after this thing, I'm not Lord of your life. It ends in pain. But when you call out, I'll be here for you. Because the judgment of God is, it's not retributive. It's restorative. Um, that has always been the understanding of the Jewish people. Um, and if Jesus is not your Lord, and if some other person is your Lord, um, the, the lords of the world are not very forgiving. They never have been. They never will be. Um... On the cross, the early Christians, when they proclaim the message of the cross, what they are proclaiming is, this is how peace enters into the world. Um, there's a conversation between Jesus and the man hanging on the cross next to him, and he says, you know what you should do? You could easily call down your armies of angels and wipe everyone out and climb down off this cross. And Jesus refuses. He says, No. That's not how peace enters into this world. It is not through gathering up weapons of war and bringing everybody together and, and then slaughtering enemies. Um, oftentimes, 
It is through giving of yourself. Pouring out your body and blood. And displaying how God works. Bringing salvation to this world. It, it is not retributive. It is restorative. And it is through the broken body of Christ and the poured out blood of Christ that the world finds healing and salvation. Um, what Jesus is doing here with this language, the, the, the Sodom and Gomorrah language, um, he's reminding them, really, when you go into this world, you are not, when you go into this world as Christians, evangelizing, um, doing the mission of God, we're not going into this world with, with fear. Um, evangelism was never meant to be done out of fear, where you're running around, like, freaked out for people and terrified for people. It, it was meant to be hopeful, because they are broken, they are suffering, um, there, there is loneliness, there is racism, there is injustice, there is pain and suffering all around you. And you are going into this world because you know that what brought all of this into the world was following lords other than Jesus. And you go into this world and you proclaim the kingdom of God, Jesus, the risen Lord, is king now and forevermore. The kingdom of God is near. It is available to you now. Follow Jesus. Repent of your Lord's follow Jesus. Um, this message is hopeful. It's about restoration. Okay? Too many of us run around, we're just terrified. We do evangelism from a place that is terrified for people. This is the most hopeful message that there is. Oftentimes, people have already been suffering because of the lords that they have been chasing. Very unforgiving lords of, of vanity um, and, and selfish gain and greed and power money and fame and um, acceptance of other people, turning people into their idols. When Jesus sends them out, he says, no, look, the whole thing's a temple. We're not going to play their games. We're not even going to let people think that we are playing their games. It's going to be obvious that we are not here to take from them. We are here to give to them life. And when they look at everything that we do, it will all point to this one central value, reverence for the world and the people in it and the desire for restoration of all things and reconciliation of them to God. That is the goal. At some point in the last 150 years or so, missions turned into this terrifying thing, a fear-based thing. Um, Jesus was hopeful. He believed people could be rescued. He believed things could be made right. And so he chases this. And he sends his disciples out in this way. And he invites them all to the table. Okay? So we're going to spend some time in communion and ponder all of this. Um, as they were heading out into the... Uh, yeah, our, our communion service can go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room. As these people are heading out into, into these places where they've not yet preached this message, they were not terrified for the people of Israel. They were hopeful for the people of Israel. They say their hope is here. Things are going to be made whole. We are doing work right now that is going to establish the kingdom and rescue these people because they have been crying out for so long for deliverance and the deliverer is here to restore Israel. So, um, the table, the communion table is open for you. Um, Whoever you are, wherever you've come from, whatever your understanding is of Jesus, um, Jesus set the table regularly, invited all kinds of people to sit with him. Table fellowship was this important thing in the ancient world. Um, Jesus was sharing his status and identity with them. God sending, setting the table for sinners 
inviting them to sit and to taste and see that he is good. That's the language that they used. Um, and so there's two elements. There's, there's, there's bread, which is the body broken for you. There's wine, which is the blood spilled for you. Um, and all of this is a picture of how salvation enters into the world. We as the church, part of the kingdom of God, um, we set off into this world to allow ourselves to be poured out and broken, however that looks. Um, a life of simplicity is part of that. Um, those uncomfortable moments of, of offering hope to people, even, the, you, the, even though you're terribly invert, uh, introverted. I mean, all of that is part of allowing ourselves to be broken and poured out. Every little tiny thing to the big things of offering your treasure that you have. Whatever it is that you do. This is how hope is brought into the world. To so the kingdom of God, we are the body of Christ, the presence of God in this world. And Jesus is Lord, and that is our proclamation. And so we're going to spend some time, and we're going to take communion. Um, and I want you to take communion with us, if you're comfortable doing so. If you're a follower of Jesus, absolutely, please do. Uh, you don't need to be a member of our church or anything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Um, I ask that you would give us hope. There are parents raising children that they are terrified for. Remind us that oftentimes it is through the difficult moments and the difficult times that, that, uh, that you are planning your rescue and your restoration. Um, remind us that you have never abandoned us and we don't need to ever push our children away or abandon them in any way. Remind us those friends who are, um, who are going astray and we're terrified for them, let us be hopeful for them. Let us chase them. Let us know that there's no one too far gone that God cannot rescue. That's what resurrection is about. Three days dead in the ground is not too far gone. And let us bring this all back to hope, restoration, and understanding that this whole thing is a temple, that everything that we have, everything our hands touch, is meant to be here to reconcile people with you, to restore them to where they need to be. Let us follow you in these ways. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.